When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You've downloaded a podcast called Earth Unscrewed. So there's obviously something about that that caught your eye. Maybe you already care about the natural world, the environment, or maybe you're just kind of curious as to what this is all about. In this podcast, we'll be championing those taking action, working out how we can make an impact ourselves. I'm Helen Scales, marine biologist and a writer. And I'm Shay Rhodes. I'm a journalist and filmmaker. This living planet of ours is just jaw-droppingly amazing. And we're not exactly taking care of it, are we? We've got oceans full of plastic, species dying out at a phenomenal rate. Whole ecosystems being destroyed as we speak. Our daily lives are affecting this incredible place. And I guess the big question is, well, is it too late? We're going to find out a bit more about sustainable projects which could fix problems. And hopefully unscrew the planet. Well, if you could imagine underground in a sort of low five-foot brick old Victorian tunnel and wading through solid lumps of yellowy, white-grey stuff. Coagulated oils and fats that have gelled together as they get cold. Grabbing anything that else is down there that goes down the loo, basically, that isn't washed away. So plastics and things like that, so sanitary products, condoms and all those kind of things, tend to get caught up and it builds up and builds up until it can actually block the whole sewer. There was one found in Whitechapel, which was 130 tonnes of fatberg. And there could be three to 400,000 tonnes of this kind of material floating around in the sewers or in the water treatment works. That's absolutely disgusting. That is so gross. Oh. It's really hard to imagine that much stuff as well, isn't it? It Just is. It's the, the entire volume. And the stench. The way he describes everything kind of sticking to it, every little, little bits of plastic. And I love this picture that I've got in front of me as well with a man kind of holding what, what I can only describe as a shovel of shit. And he's not even wearing any kind of breathing apparatus. No, but look which at his face. Amazing. He's so pale. He looks like he's he's done all the puking. He's 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 vomited. Oh, he's a trooper. He's digging it all out for us. <laughs> Thank you, man, in the sewer. Well, that was just a little teaser. And fatbergs, we'll come to that and how it's relevant in a little bit. And hopefully, by the time we've finished, you won't think it's quite so gross. And actually, maybe even kind of beautiful in its own planet-saving kind of way. But first, let's back up a bit. 
Yes, and welcome to episode one of Earth Unscrewed. We're going to be talking about how we can make a difference and not getting bogged down with getting depressed about the problems that we are facing in the world today. There are people out there trying to make a difference. That's right, yeah, and everywhere from the bottom of the oceans, miles down, right out into outer space. There's no limits to what we're going to be talking about. So on the theme of unscrewing the planet, Helen, what are we talking about today? Today we are driving change. We're going to be talking about cars. Obviously there's a couple of different aspects to the environmental impact of, of all the cars that we drive. One being the emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions. We're burning fossil fuels, releasing loads of carbon dioxide in 2013. In the UK, a third of all greenhouse gas emissions came from transport. Wow. That's all connected to climate change and disturbing weather patterns around the world and floods and droughts and all that kind of stuff. So transport and cars are playing a big part in that. Then there's the other side of it, which maybe we're hearing a bit more about at the moment, which is air pollution and the health impacts of transport, especially in big cities. There are 7 million premature deaths every year linked to air pollution, according to the World Health Organization. Wow. So road transport really is a, a big contributor to to the health of our everyday lives. I mean, as a city boy myself, I notice when I leave the city that certain things like dry eyes and black bogies aren't normal. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, I don't live in London, so I do come down occasionally. By the end of the day, it's kind of shocking to blow my nose and it's not normally that colour. I was teaching some kids this year from China and I really got this insight into how bad air pollution is over there. Their lives are really affected by whether or not they can even go outside that day, whether they go to school. They have apps on their phones saying whether the air pollution is so bad that they should basically just stay at home. They said that when they first arrived in England, they stepped off the aeroplane and they were like, what is that? Looking up at the sky. And it was blue sky and they just don't see that. Oh my goodness, that's horrible. We've seen some really shocking statistics. Just a couple of months ago, in India, it was declared, I think, that Delhi was the most polluted city on the planet. I mean, you may have seen that, that cricket players were, were kind of called off the pitch because they had to throw up because it was so disgusting and so polluted. And that's cricket as well. I mean, it's not like they're moving around. <laughs> True. Is there a solution, Helen? Well, one thing we're reading about in the press a lot is this great switch to electric vehicles. And there are big players like Elon Musk at Tesla, and they're making a lot of noise about this. Seems like potentially a good idea, but then where does the electricity come from would be, I suppose, your first question. To find out more about that, I went to meet Sylvan Filippi, who is the principal at DS Virgin Racing Formula E team. Formula E is basically Formula One, but with electric cars. Who knew? The main idea behind the championship is to do two things. The first one is to stimulate innovation. So having as many stakeholders as possible in the sport, i.e. companies like Virgin, but also car manufacturers and suppliers and so on, to accelerate the development of electric car technologies with the hope that these technologies will then trickle down to road cars as soon as possible. And the second objective of, of Formula E is to be the best possible marketing platform we can create to showcase these technologies. All five lights are on. Really electrifying stuff. Down the inside, but Lynn is fighting him up to the apex. Victory for Sam Bird. I think it is the future. The whole world should be run on clean energy. Formula E is far quieter than Formula 1 because you don't have the noise of the petrol engine. But if you ask anyone who's actually been to a race, they are much louder than most people think. Whatever the car, what you hear mostly is the wind noise, the aerodynamics noises. But it's a kind of like whoosh, you know, kind of wind noise that you, that you get.
So I've been in the automotive industry all my life, more than 15 years now. And I really got the bug of electric vehicle technology by understanding the, the immense advantages that this technology can bring, both in terms of um, as a driver and also in terms of benefits for, for the environment and the overall picture. First short-term benefit of electric cars is that you don't emit pollution emissions where people live. That's a critical thing. There's been a study recently in 2050, 70% of the world population is going to live in cities. So at the moment, we are doing the most stupid thing, which is everyone's living in cities, and we are emitting all or most of our emissions where people live, which makes zero sense. So it's absolutely critical to move all the cars to electric as soon as possible, especially in cities, and move away the, the emissions uh, as far away as possible from where people live. Depending on which country you, you live in, the, the energy is made from different sources. If you take an electric car and you plug it and you use it in Poland, uh, Poland has a very dirty grid uh, with more than 80% coal. Even if you uh, use an electric car in Poland and you charge exclusively over there, you're still emitting around 10% uh, less than you would do with a combustion car. But that's the worst case scenario. And then if you go to countries like the Nordic countries or like in Germany last year, they managed to do an entire month for the whole country based on renewables. Then you're driving your car and you're not emitting anything. So if you switch an electric car straight away, regardless of where you are in the world, you're emitting less emissions per kilometer traveled. But then that's only your starting point. Then it only gets better. And to add to that, if you really compare fairly, for sure you need a, a power station to create the energy to power an electric car. But... You have to think where the fuel in your fuel station comes from. Uh, you had to dig it from somewhere, refine it, put this oil or fuel in the pipeline, then put it on a super tanker that's then been somewhere, then in a truck and into your fuel station. The carbon cost of that chain is insane, and it's actually quite difficult to put exact numbers on it. But there's been some research that seems to say that just the refining process of that energy, so forget about digging the oil or just refining the oil from crude oil to petrol or whatever, uses as much energy as the entire supply chain of the electric car energy. What is fantastic about electric car technology is that the components that make the car move are actually far superior than, than on a petrol car. All things being equal, using far less energy for a given distance than a petrol car. Any normal car you see on the street is about 30% efficient, roughly. That means that whatever fuel you put in it, petrol, diesel, doesn't matter, for 100 units of energy, whatever that might be, only 30 of that goes to the wheel. 70% is wasted through friction and heat and so on, and you'll never get it back. It goes into CO2 emissions and so on, and, and that's it, you've done it. When an electric car is around 90% efficient, so obviously the energy in that case is electricity, not petrol, but for the same 100 units of energy, which you can me measure in megajoules or whatever, for 100 units of energy, 90% go to the wheel and make the car move. You're only wasting you know, 5 to 10%, which is fantastic. You can make an electric car much faster than the best... Uh, Intel commission engine you could think of. It's insane, isn't it? I was completely bowled away. I have to admit, I didn't really know anything about electric cars mm. before that. But just this efficiency, the idea that it's just a much more efficient engine yeah. in its sort of so just 90% as a starting... as opposed to 30%. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, the other thing he said that thought was really interesting and blew my mind a bit was in terms of the Formula E at the moment they have to get to the same distance as the normal Formula One racing they have to stop halfway through and change to another car because right. the batteries aren't good enough to do the whole run okay, yeah. 
But he reckoned that within a year's time, the technology will already have moved on so much that they will do it in a single car. Gosh. So they're really pushing forwards, like getting better batteries for yeah. these Formula E cars. And then hopefully that will transfer into, you know, domestic cars and other things as well. That's the hope. And then the other thing he said was that basically as batteries get better, you might want to eventually get a new battery for your car, one that stores more energy. You could basically take the battery out of your car and stick it in your house and plug it up to your solar panel and use yeah. it to store energy to use around the house. Yeah. It, you don't just chuck it away at the end, you can keep using it. Do you think you'll ever get an electric car? I hope so. I hope so. Looking at the prices at the moment, it doesn't look like it's about to happen anytime soon. I'm in the market for a new car. There you go. Um, I've just bought a second-hand hybrid. That was about all right. I could afford um, really? for now. Yeah, and it's pretty cool. But as we've heard, obviously, electric cars are still really expensive. We, neither of us can afford them at the moment. So what can we do kind of in the meantime? For hundreds of years, people have been experimenting with all sorts of different clean fuels. Peanut oil, rotten potatoes. Sadly, whales were killed in their thousands for blubber and oil for a long time. Gladly, that's a thing of the past now. But I guess more recently, what's coming up, and, and it still remains quite controversial, really, is this idea of growing fuels and biofuels, growing plants that then can be converted into fuel and we can stick them in the cars that we have already. So it's maybe not such a big change. But then that leads to the problem of whether or not those crops are going to take over farmland that we need for feeding ourselves. You know, that's another big issue, obviously. So we've got this food versus fuel debate. So what if we could have a biofuel that doesn't threaten farmland and food security? Maybe the solution is right under our noses. Well, we've been looking at wastes and how to turn them into biodiesel, transport fuels, as an alternative to fossil diesel for many years. This is Dickon Posnet of Argent Energy, the UK's leading sustainable biodiesel producer and fuel supplier. I met up with him to find out about a rather surprising substance that's being harvested in the UK for clean fuel. But first, I asked him how it all began. We started out looking at waste animal fats, actually about the time of the BSE crisis, if you remember then, and we found that we could turn waste animal fats, instead of going to landfill for animals that died that have to be rendered down, the animal fats would just go into waste. And we found that we could turn that into a biodiesel. So we had our sort of antenna out and always listening out for interesting options on that. And there were a couple of instances a few years back. One was when, actually here in London, when the sewers under Leicester Square became blocked and some rather noxious fumes were being emanated from underneath and it was called Fester Square in the newspapers. Things were bubbling up that really aren't very conducive to tourism and we were asked, look, can you deal with fats and that sort of triggered the process. And we then invested in a small-scale demonstration plant to see if we could make it happen. When that was successful, we've invested in a new plant which can turn this highly degraded type of material into a biodiesel. That sounds gross. Yeah, but how cool, though. <laughs> I told you we'd come back around to this groovy stuff from the beginning of the programme and making it into something really useful, you know, killing two birds with one stone, getting rid of the mess, creating a really good clean fuel at the same time. I just keep on thinking, how do they get it? Well, where it starts effectively is in our homes and businesses and restaurants when things go down the sink. And from there, there's a process as it goes into the sewers all the way along until it comes to the water treatment works that deal with it all. 
So anywhere in that sort of process where you might have to clear the stuff out, get high-pressure jet wash, they have to go down there manually moving it, there's not a really set way of dealing with it, which is a challenge for us because effectively we're having to sort of work with the water companies, develop a new supply chain. And that's one of the things that has sort of hindered the progress of it. It's, it's a really difficult and sort of expensive way of getting material out. But the more we can get out of it and the more we can work with water companies to think of us as an option, then obviously the more of this material can be turned into biodiesel. I think the other really important one that we'd love to see happen is legislation which gets grease traps and collects this material before it goes down the sewers so we don't have to go through this problem of fester square and and nasty stuff bubbling up through the ground on a hot summer's day. We can collect it early on in the process and we can turn it into bodies. It's great that it uses something that we don't have a use for otherwise. Yeah, when he started on cows, I was like, whoa now. <laughs> but yes, fats generally, there, there's lots of those. That we lots of need. different ones. And that is really interesting as well. He was saying it's very flexible. Like, yep, could be a fat burger one day. It could be rancid mayonnaise the next day. Old soup. Apparently we have a, kind of a soup lake somewhere that oh. also has fat in it that can be pulled out and made into fuel and apparently none of it will actually smell of the original stuff <laughs> it gets very clean <laughs> i think i first heard about biodiesel and it was using chip fat from fish and yeah, chip shops and see. i always imagined that you'd smell like <laughs> see i i have i have some experience of this i did i went to an island in the philippines where they'd recently switched all their tuk-tuks over to using biodiesel and it did smell slightly sweet there was a slightly oh, really? donutty kind of sweetness to the air oh, that sounds quite nice yeah it was it was nice why was it sweet? They used. Well, I, I'm guessing it's the, the kind of the fat that they were using came from donuts or something like that. But there was definitely a well, it was definitely not as heavy as normal diesel smells. There you go. That yeah. sounds good. So back to biofuel in London, Helen. What's Dickon's Fatberg fuel being used for at the moment? Good question, and that's exactly what I asked uh, Dickon about. In London at the moment. There are around about two, two and a half thousand buses running on high blends of biodiesel. We see biodiesel as a here and now solution because it is entirely renewable. It is a solution for this decarbonisation, particularly, I would say, of heavy goods vehicles and buses and coaches, which are much more difficult to convert to, say, electricity. So pure Fatberg fuel is super efficient. It's much, much cleaner than petrol in terms of the stuff that comes out of the exhaust pipe. And it's got a much lower carbon footprint, really almost nothing compared to petrol. And not to mention, obviously, that it um, blocks our sewers and gets over that problem too. So I really do see this as being a kind of win-win alternative to fossil fuels. But can you grow the Fatberg industry? Yeah, interesting question, that, because there is more and more waste that we're finding and that can be diverted from landfill. And we've got a real commitment internally in the UK to do that. We're waiting on legislation as we speak to get confirmed and in place for April, which will raise the requirement on fuel suppliers to put more biofuels into the mix. And that target is going to go up from 7 to 8 to 9 to 10%. And then after 2020, it's going to carry on growing. 
because you do see different blends of biodiesel kind of at the pumps. Yeah, there are different ones. I, I saw them last time I was in France, actually, mm. and I, would, I had no idea, so I had to Google it. And yeah, apparently you can put those, if you've got a diesel engine, you can just use those those fuels and that's fine. So it's got a small percentage, so in that case 15%, right. from some kind of bio source. I don't know what it would have been. I guess it could have been from all sorts of things with Argent Energy putting in coffee grinds and fatbergs mm. and everything else. There are changing kind of targets in terms of making that uh, a higher percentage. But I guess that's kind of a cool thing about it, that it doesn't have to be this sort of all or nothing from right from the start and that there's a way to kind of slowly bring this in. And maybe part of the issue is also getting people to realise what that is. I, I feel like it's sort of been put into our world without people really knowing maybe that that's what that number means mm. on the pump. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, people love their old cars and it would be such a shame to sort of have to sweep up all these big lumps of metal that are perfectly functional just because they're no longer electric or, or hybrid or whatever it is. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a huge amount of the energy embedded in a car is just its manufacture, isn't it? Mm. And so we should be, in a way, keeping them going if we can. So we've heard about electric cars from Sylvan, and now we've heard about uh, clean fuels made from waste products from Dicon. But what's better? As a biodiesel producer, you'd expect me to say that we're the best, and uh, I like to think that. But actually, and the reality is... There's so much demand for decarbonisation in transport that we need everything. And you might think that I'd say electricity is a competitor, biomethane's a competitor, hydrogen's a competitor, and they are, but we need them all. And so we shouldn't and generally don't look at each other as competitors, but as contributors to the big picture. Actually, the competitor is fossil fuels, is diesel is petrol it's coal it's those things those are the competitors so what's holding us back from having biodiesel made out of waste products in all our vehicles could we ever get to that point so we're not going to be able to replace all our diesel with waste-based biodiesel there isn't the volume of that kind of waste but actually by the time we get to that kind of level, we're going to find better and more efficient ways of transport anyway. Just one more thing I thought of, actually. I don't know if this is the sort of thing that you would have any answers for, but I imagine some of our listeners, certainly this is what I'm thinking, is what should we be doing in terms of getting rid of fats at home? So actually, I do I do actually kind of collect like old oil in a bottle and then occasionally there's actually a place in where I live in Cambridge where I can take that to be reused. But that's quite a big effort, and I don't suppose that's going to be practical for many people. Do you have any advice on what we can do? There's a great way of dealing with that. Actually, we did it uh, when we started putting biodiesel in buses for the first time with company Stagecoach, who you'll know is a big bus operation in the UK. And in Scotland, we collected the used cooking oil from the bus depot where the local population, the people would have gone down to the bus depot with a little pot of their used cooking oil, they'd have deposited it into the bank. We take that fuel, we turn it into biodiesel, and then the biodiesel is used to run the buses 100% for the people who are contributing to the bank for waste cooking oil. And at the same time, they got some discount on their tickets as well. But interestingly, when they did a survey of the people who were doing it, they said, well, we really feel we're contributing. We're doing something. We're finding a way that we can help mitigate climate change. bus company found that they had an increased footfall of number of people who were 
using the bus because they felt this is a really good thing to do and they, they could link with it and they could uh, relate to it. I love the idea of taking a bottle of oil down to the bus and getting a cheaper ticket. <laughs> <laughs> I worry about pouring stuff down the sink, but until there's kind of some system in place, it's going to be really hard for any of us to really know how to avoid adding to fatbergs. That's it. That's um, exactly it. Yeah, having a system in place seems like the only way forward, really. Once we all know what to do, then we, we'll probably all do it. But then whose job is it to put that in place? Do we need to demand it or, or does, does it just simply need to be legislated for? I, I think it has to be a bit of both, probably. I think with all of this, again, it kind of feeds into what Dickon was saying about it's not necessarily electric versus biodiesel. Mm. They're all part of the solution. And maybe the demand and the kind of the legislation top down, bottom up, both of those things need to happen in terms of making change. I think I often fall into it personally into a trap of like, what is the answer? I need to know the one thing that's going to solve this. And it's not going to be a silver bullet. It isn't going to be one thing or the other. But if we can all push in this sort of same direction, I think it has to all kind of feed in. A lot of this is time, isn't it? Electric cars are very expensive right now. And then there's certain laws in place already that are bringing the cost down. But you can see that once more and more people start to buy electric cars, the chances of people like me being able to afford one goes up exponentially. Yeah, and that was what really struck me, actually, about talking to Sylvan. You know, must admit there was maybe a little sceptical going in, thinking this is something completely Formula One, Formula E. What's Mm. that got to do with, you know, actually changing the way we drive cars day Mm. to day? But Maybe it is, you know, I may not be a fan of racing, but a lot of people are. And if they can be kind of, you know, showing that this is possible, making it kind of cool and sexy, that's kind of important too, Yeah, really. I think proving the technology more than anything. I mean, one of the things that really jumped out is when he talked about how battery power is, is still moving forward so fast. To know that batteries are still developing that fast is really encouraging. It's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? So there is one more thing which takes us completely outside the box and gives us a chance to completely rethink the way that we use cars. So short term, all cars electric. And then, as I'm sure you've heard, the next step or the step going parallel is to make all cars autonomous. You don't need a driver in these cars. And the benefits are immense because that means that uh, you can not only make sure that your cars don't emit any pollution anymore, but also their rate of usage is higher. At the moment, on average around the world, a car is used less than 3% of the time. So we're producing these cars, a lot of metal, a lot of things, a lot of energy going into these cars, and 97% of the time, these cars are standing somewhere, being parked, not being used. And that's a very bad use of, of an asset, basically. So when all cars or most cars, again, especially in cities, become electric and autonomous, that means we can take this usage to a much higher level, which means you then reduce the amount of cars on the road. So you reduce congestion, you reduce everything. So that's what the future looks like. That sounds really exciting. I really like the idea, actually, of not having to buy 100% of a car, because I'm very aware that I don't use my car very much at all. It just sits there. And I feel incredibly guilty. And also, I'm very aware that I could afford a really, really good car if I didn't have to pay for 100% of it. (laughs) So if I could only pay for the 3% that I use, that would be great. I can totally imagine it, actually. Somebody said to me, it would be terrible, though, you know, as a a family, because we have a a family car at home. So it's got, you know, pushchair in the back and child seats and all the rest of it. And I still think it would work fine. I can imagine a situation where, you know, the boot is removable. And so it'll park, just drop the boot there, and then drive off again. And then the next time a car turns up, it'll pick my boot up again with the pushchair and all that stuff in, so that I still don't have to empty it theoretically out of the car. 
You see, I've got this all planned That's out. That's brilliant, brilliant. As long as there's room for my surfboard on the roof, I'm fine. I'm sure that we, <laughs> without a doubt, you can just have you just have to order one that, that comes with the surfboard attachment. Excellent. Fully autonomous cars will be a bigger disruption to the whole automotive and transportation industry than electric cars, actually. You can just make the overall use of, of assets, and, and, and i.e. cars and vehicles on the road, much, much more efficient. People in cities, for example, most likely, will realize that actually owning a car is absolutely not efficient because it's very expensive, it will be very difficult to park, and all the things that you are used to. So when you move to fully autonomous vehicles, and electric cars, obviously, we will then be able to reduce dramatically the cost per kilometer or per mile traveled because that car is being used all of the time. So think of Uber or equivalent, and there will be many, many riders in that, in that environment. Because your assets are used all of the time, and by the way, you don't have a driver to pay, your only cost of travel is the energy that you put in the car, which will be very cheap because it's electricity. So that means that as a citizen, as a person living in the city center, you will have zero incentive in owning a car because it will make no sense. It will be much, much cheaper to just go on your app and car share, basically. It could be a combination of uh, fleet operators that will be like, like a taxi service in city centers. And then, obviously, you could have um, a car sharing from the suburb to the city center and back and so on. Hopefully, you can reduce congestion and traffic jams because you have 10 times less cars on the road. If you go to that model, you will be able to remove all the parking lanes in the cities, which means that's one more lane for travel in each direction. So there are huge benefits, not only to transportation in the environment, but also for city planning and how people live in cities. So we're talking about a you know, 10 to 20 year change in, in mobility, but that's arguably the biggest disruption. Yeah. I love the way he says 10 to 20 years, like that's really far away. Yeah, because I mean, not. to me, that does that sounds like almost tomorrow, basically. Exactly. I mean, gosh, two thousand and eight—that was ten years ago. Yeah. No, it wasn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> very, very feasibly, my child will not learn to drive. Yeah, I think. Simply get an app. Yeah, exactly. I think my dream for this is that uh, your kids, you take them in a few years' time, maybe even in 10 years' time, to a transport museum and you look at all the old-fashioned ways that we (laughs) used to get ourselves around and you'll say, oh, look, here's the penny farthing. Isn't that ridiculous? This huge wheel. Here's a steam train. And then alongside it will be a petrol engine and it will be such a thing of the past that your Mm. kids will just say... Why did you do that? Why did you put liquid old stuff from the ground into cars to get around? It just will be completely alien to them. I can totally see it as well. I can see cities with just a load of little automated vehicles moving around, almost like a train, like snakes moving through a city and then breaking away from each other. Kind of perfect with these these little kind of depots that they all go to and charge up and get cleaned and then zoom out again. You can definitely see more kind of walking space as well opening up in the city. And we could plant up all the parking spaces with trees. Maybe with grass instead of tarmac. And we could do all those other things we never get to do because we're driving. We could read books. Yeah. And listen to podcasts. Yeah. You think about how they design cars, it's going to be completely different. I mean, you'll have four seats that all face towards each other and everyone will look each other in the eye as they drive instead of shouting at the back of each other's heads. It could be quite fun. It like could be. Car it be a social experience. Yeah, just driving, getting your, getting your automated vehicle and drive around. But you can totally see teenagers doing that, though. Thanks for listening to Earth Unscrewed. 
If you're interested in any of the themes of this episode, we've included some links in the description for this episode. So if you were really intrigued by what Sylvain was saying about Formula E and those amazing races that they do, well, you can look those up and maybe even tune in to the next race. You can also go to the DS Virgin Racing website and learn more about their initiative, Race Against Climate Change. But let's not forget those delicious fatbergs. If you live in London or if you're passing through the capital anytime soon, then we have a great treat for you. For a few months, you can actually go and see the last dollop of the world's most notorious fatberg at the Museum of London. Don't worry, they've got it sealed up tightly in a display case. And also, apparently, you'll be able to see some samples of biodiesel that was made from the rest of the fatberg by Dickon and the team at Arden and Energy. So that's pretty cool. And it's free. So do pop in if you're in London or if you're passing through. To follow the series, don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I'm Helen Scales. And I'm Shay Rhodes. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.